The presenting sponsor of On Education is Participate. Lately, teachers from all over have been working together to find new approaches to provide quality remote education. Participate's sister company, Participate Learning, presents United We Teach, a global gathering place for educators to share distance learning resources as we navigate these strange times. For these resources and more, visit participate.com slash oneducation. Typing club, yo, typingclub.com. Welcome to On Education, part of the On Podcast Media Network. My name is Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will debate whether our students should be using keyboards, what one-to-one device is the best. And our guest this week is author Alex Pate. So the other night I was streaming on... Uh, so so if you didn't know, if you're not paying attention to you know, my, my Twitter feed and first off, why not? But whatever, <laughs> uh, we'll move past that and just get to the point, Mike. And that's that I'm actually doing this really cool project, um, with a nonprofit called LA works. They're a volunteerism mm-hmm. organization in, in California. And they normally do a in-person huge, super well-attended event, um, you know, for Martin Luther King Day. Um, mm. And obviously they can't do anything like that this year. So they, um, you know, um, one of the people that works at LA Works, Jassy, um, he reached out to me. He had heard me on a podcast uh, and, and said, you know, do you have any ideas on how we could do something really cool for Martin Luther King Day virtually? And I said, ah, oh, but yes, I do. Um, <laughs> and, and so... We're, we're building this like really cool Minecraft world. Um, and it's going to be a virtual experience for people to come into and, and, and participate and kind of explore the world that we're building. And, and, and we're highlighting social justice leaders, uh, civil rights activists from the 1960s to today. You're going to be able to talk to these NPCs and learn about them and their stories. Um, mm. And all of this is taking place in basically a an accurate recreation of the Washington Mall area in Washington D.C. So we're building the the Lincoln Memorial and the the White House and the Capitol Building and a bunch of other structures and really detailing it out so that it looks super nice. And and I had uh, you know I've mentioned my stream a couple times and I'm mentioning it again because. Um, you know, I had one of the best streams that I've had so far. I had like almost 90 people watching the other night, um, mm. which is, you know, amazing. Um, yeah. So I want to thank folks for coming by and showing support. Um, I don't need you, you know, your money or your subscribe, you know, subscriptions or anything like that. But it'd be awesome to just have you come by and say hi. Take a look at what we're doing. Let me show you around. Um, so, you know, twitch.tv slash Mr. Washburn. If you go there and follow me on Twitch, you'll get a notification when I go live. Um, and, and most of the time between now and January, I will be streaming this this big Martin Luther King uh, Day world in, in Minecraft. Um, and it's been really a lot of fun. You were, you were, mm. I streamed a little bit this morning and you popped in, uh, yes. which was, which was fun as well. 
So it's, qu- so it's been quite, great. Quite amazing. I mean, that's the, just to take that kind of a build on in and to replicate it in a way that makes it, keeps it realistic, but, you know, gives it its own uh, artistic appeal to it. It's yeah. definitely, it's coming along, man. It looks amazing. It's been a lot of work, um, and, and I'm and I'm dream- I'm starting to dream about it a little bit, uh, which is when you know it's getting a little crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's been a lot of fun, and um, you know, so like I said, yeah, twitch.tv slash Mister Washburn, uh, come by and, and check out the stream. Uh, you know, smash that follow button, and uh, and and come and see what we're doing because it's really cool. Mm. I did want to share one other kind of cool thing, sort of related to that, um, and it's and it's kind of maybe a cool lesson in relation to some other things. I've been learning a lot about, um, you know, content and content creation and learning a lot from really good content creators. Um, not necessarily about like how to do better at Minecraft or how to, you know, you know, survive in call of duty or any, any nonsense like that. I've been thinking a lot about just the, the act of content creation. And, Hmm. um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how I, um, you know, merged my world of podcasting. You know, I, I host or produce at this point four podcasts, mm-hmm. um, which is which is wild. Um, but then I have this other world that I'm kind of trying to get involved in in the in the streaming world and and I and I actually love it. Um, and so how do I bring those two together? And um, I kind of took a look around the kind of gaming slash streaming landscape and there's actually not a podcast that exists um, talking about the streamers themselves. Mm. So there's podcasts about the game industry, lots of podcasts about video games, uh, review podcasts, but there's not a podcast that actually talks about just, you know, the people Um, because, you know, streamers are people and they have stories and there's, there's something that drives them to want to sit in front of a camera six to eight to 10 hours a day and, and talk to people and play video games or do whatever the heck it is that they do. Some cook, some play music, some dance. Um, Why do they do Mm -hmm. that? And what drives them and what's their story? Um, So I've actually launched a new podcast and we're going to debut it right now um it's called going live and um i wanted to give everyone who's listening here a first look at the trailer i'm mike washburn and this is going live going live isn't a podcast about streaming it's a podcast about streamers the people behind the mic streamers are why people tune in they have lives families backgrounds and stories to tell Going Live will tell those stories. The show launches in just a few weeks. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Let's get started. Welcome in. So I'm really excited about this podcast, and I really hope that you go to goinglivepodcast.com and check it out there. Um, by the time you're listening to this, it should be on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. It's already available on Spotify and on Amazon and a couple awesome. other spots already. Um, but by the time you're listening to this, it should be ready everywhere. Um, you know, 
subscribe, take a listen yeah. to it. If you're interested in learning more about people and content creators and why they do what they do. Yeah. It's an interesting space too. I like it. We have, we've talked about it several times. I think it, it first came up when we were talking about Ninja being on ESPN, um, the magazine. I need Ninja and, on my and, podcast. And <laughs> yeah, no, that would be amazing. And, right. and just, and just how complex and difficult and, it's a really good concept and and I'm interested in hearing some of those stories that you were just talking about Mike. I I've been thinking a lot about these folks Ninja, Shroud, you know, it's funny. I I'll like, you know, watch Ninja or Shroud or a couple of these other other folks Pokimane um and they'll be streaming at like 8 o'clock at night and then I'll go to bed and wake up in the morning and cuz I wake up fairly early and some of these folks are still streaming. Yeah. And it's like Oh my God! How do you, <laughs> how do you do it? The energy. Why do you do it? And I just, I want to, I want to know. I want to hear from them because I'm sure they all have different reasons. Um, Absolutely. You know, and at some point, you know, folks like Shroud and Ninja and Summit and and these other folks, Pokemon, are making so much money. Dan TDM, Dan TDM, who makes so much money from YouTube. That he doesn't need to stream. No. Yet he does. Yep. Um, and, and um, you know, there's a couple other of these YouTubers that are getting into streaming now. Jack Septicai, another, another popular, super popular YouTuber who mm. doesn't need Twitch. He doesn't need to stream. But now they're doing it too. And it can't just be for more money. Right? Because, yeah. I mean, at some point, you have enough in, yeah. you know, at least, <laughs> I mean, I'm just a guy, you know, trying to get by, you know, uh, but I assume at some point you have enough money that it doesn't matter how much money yeah. you actually make. Yeah, and so I assume that like deeper. folks like DNTDM and Shroud, like Shroud made $30 million or something like that just to go to Mixer. Mm. And when Mixer shut down, he kept all of that. Like he got all that money right away. So it's not like he needs more money. He's yeah. got, you know, millions of dollars in the bank. Um, it's wild, 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 wild. Um, you want to talk about keyboards for a second well, as a awesome, <laughs> you know, segue of all segues. Let's um, talk about keyboards. There was just a great conversation. Actually, it started off with a conversation about SAMR. Um, and then okay. it deviated into multiple uh, pathways of which one pathway was just talking about and actually, it still has to do with SAMR in general, um, whether or not that's the best, you know, integration model or whatever. That doesn't. That's not what the conversation is about. But uh, our friend of the podcast and actually uh, fellow on education podcast team member Andy Lizer, um, he he chimed in with with basically talking about the that keyboards can kill creativity. And it's a great topic, I believe, because it is one that's connected to so many things that happen in schools that have to that has to do with the purchase of specific devices. Um, and he wrote, actually, he wrote it a few years ago, a a fantastic post uh, on Medium, and it's called "Qwerty Creativity Killer." And basically, he he recalls a story of a young elementary school student who was just having a hard time 
being able to, in this case, type out his thoughts that were in his head and put them into this computer. Um, and Andy could see the anxiety level going up and he knew that the kid, that the student was had a great concept and a story, but he just, it was that disconnect of trying to find the right letters on this keyboard thing and input them into this device. It was just it's super intimidating. Um, Andy goes on and tells basically how he teaches them to just do a voice to type type of uh, uh, of of filling in the, the the story and was able to just voice type and and then fill and then fix the punctuation etc and how he just the kid just um, even teared up because he was able to basically express his ideas the way that he knew he could which is vocally verbally um, and then be able to have this story come to life um, which was fantastic but one of the points that Andy was trying to make as far as within the article itself is that there's this thing that happens when you type. And he, my wife is a writer and she's a poet, a published poet, and, and she's also written a novel. And one of the things I don't understand because I don't write, you know, not especially not in the way that, that she does as far as creatively, uh, much of the writing that she does, especially, especially related to poetry, she actually writes it down uh, in, in journals, writes them all down and creates them all there first. And she said that it has to go there first before she ever transposes it onto, you know, typed format. And she said it's part of the artistic way of being able to do that. Now, some other people like Stephen King and whoever else might be prefer the keyboard or whatever else it might be. And actually right. a bunch of us, I would say us as in uh, older people, <laughs> we love the keyboard because we developed an expertise on it and it has become comfortable for us as far as a way of being able to quickly put down our ideas, uh, yeah. send our messages, et cetera, and so forth. Um, but it may not be, as it says here, the best way for our students to express themselves and definitely can be something that can kill creativity because you can't, you're not proficient enough in the skill of typing. It, it has this barrier to entry. Um, and, and so anyway, I thought it was a really, really good point and a really good conversation starter for the really the next topic which was what i really wanted to jump off on mike which I, was i, I yeah, want to weigh ahead. in on this though a little yeah, bit yeah, go ahead go ahead i'm not a fan of any position that vilifies the device over the behavior so for example games cause violence Yes. Cell phones are the basis for our inability to be social um, and our kids, why our kids don't, you know, talk to each other. Um, keyboards are why some students don't write well. I, I think this article would be stronger if it made the case for, and maybe it does, just not in the way that I'm reading it, for device agnostic education where any device any anything you want to use to express what you want to express educators in school should be equipped to allow a student to do that mm. so that if that 10 year old loves to type and is perfectly fine typing we should let them type 
if but how many that student, 10 year olds do you know that type though mine does well i'm just saying i mean we could probably put it out to our audience that's pretty young it's I'm usually just saying that it yeah, exists i'm sure and it there's exists. no there's no justification for removing it there's just the justification for providing as many pathways as possible to the same outcome I, I think that this relates, though, to the next conversation, which is the what districts get obsessed with. Okay. Two things. One is, and I'm talking about one-to-one devices. So in this district, specifically what Andy was talking about here, there was these devices that were available that had keyboards on them. He didn't say what the device was, I don't think, in the article, but they had keyboards on them. Let's say right. they were Chromebooks. Okay. Um Luckily enough, Andy was proficient enough as a uh, technology integrationist and a, a person proficient in devices that he knew that there was a way to kind of bypass the keyboard and then be able to just go voice to text. Uh, that right. that was fantastic. Uh, but what he was saying, as far as the article itself, is that this keyboard can be a limiting factor in in, in being able to get those creative juices going, the, the creativity kind of going. Because here's what kids can do. They know how to write. Most, a lot of them do as far as write, write, like with their handwritten type stuff, whether not in cursive or not, but at least in print. <laughs> they know how to write letters. They've, they've done, been doing that from an elementary age. So they can get their thoughts down that way. Here's another thing that they can do. They could turn on a camera, a video camera, and just record themselves like a video because that's you press a button and you can express yourself, you know, being able to do that also. Um, The things that people get obsessed about, especially school districts is one is the price per device. So that's why Chromebooks are super popular as far as the United States. Everybody can say whatever they want. They could have an argument about that. The Chromebook is as good as X and the X is going to be for me like the iPad. That it's, it's not as it, it's as good as that. No, but I'm just saying that. I know people, I'm just being hot takey. Sc- yeah, school districts that <laughs> that purchase those devices will tell you that they are. You'll okay, say, yeah. "Well, well, can they do this? Oh, yeah, I can. Is you just have to download this and do this and do this thing. Put this Chrome extension on here, and then it kind of does it right." Sideload windows. <laughs> it kind of does. It kind of does the whatever you wanted to do right. So price is one of the things. But you know what the other obsession is, Mike? Tell me. I can and I can hear it that it that you're part of the crew too of this second obsession. Keyboards. There's this obsession with us as adults because we grew up with keyboards. It was important to learn to type. It was like you had to go and take a class. I did. I mean, I don't know how when that stopped. You know, I'm I'm 45, and so I don't know what year they stopped saying it was mandatory to take keyboard. But a lot of our mm-hmm. listeners, I bet, had to take keyboarding. Why mm-hmm. did we have to take keyboarding? Well, many of the professions that we potentially could have uh, went to Accountant. required keyboarding skills. There was yeah. just like it was like. It, and it, it went from a typewriter to an actual word processor of some sort, like a digital word processor, to computers eventually. And we needed to be proficient at typing. Not just proficient, but we, we got drilled. They made video yeah. games about this. 
they gamified keyboarding uh, so that you could be like super fast and proficient, 100 words Type, per minute. You know, typing that, club, yo, typingclub.com. That's, that's what I'm best. saying. But we were obsessed with that. And we continue to be obsessed that that skill is translatable to, again, all of the different careers, professions, and those types of things, or many of them, you know, those types of things that, that exist uh, today. I don't even know if that exists anymore, if that if that correlation is actually there. I, I, I know that for me in my life, it makes it a lot easier to do the things that I do. But by the time that my students or my own kids, when they grow up and they're like in their 20s and, and starting to get jobs and whatever it might be, will that be an important thing? I don't know. I just think that we're so used to it that we want that damn keyboard on that thing. Even when we buy iPads, one of the first questions teachers have is, can we connect it to a keyboard? And you know what? One of the biggest purchases are for districts that buy iPads, those freaking extert, like those little keyboards that come really? along and they can connect to that, wow. to, a, to an iPad, Bluetooth ones, hmm. Bec- because God forbid a student would type up a paper on an iPad, you know, on the, on the keyboard that appears upon an iPad, because that would be, you know impossible and you know whatever might be and how many papers are we writing now too you know like as far as that that's another thing it's like we we're obsessed with the things that were great and the things that we, we were that needed to be done when we were growing up as far as an education but i don't know if those things translate still that's really what i was getting to and maybe i'm wrong too <laughs> so what do you think <laughs> i'm gonna I'm going to blow your mind a little, maybe, because you you definitely had a perception of what I thought that might not be actually the reality of what I think. Um, When we went one-to-one at my school, I was part of the team that helped, you know, make some of those decisions. And I advocated for iPads, no keyboards, uh, up until grade six okay and then and then we moved them to macbook airs for grades seven and eight um one-to-one macbook airs for grades seven and eight so um i don't believe necessarily that um kids need keyboards to work effectively on an ipad i i don't believe that what i do think is that we do need to teach kids keyboarding Hmm. Um, so there's a little bit of a conflict there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, Mike, in 20 years, and that's really what, I mean, let's just, I think Andy brings it up in, in Twitter somewhere in this big long thread that started off as a Samer thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah. He bring, I mean, I he get the narrative. Up, I get the idea yep. that, you know, the future and we don't know what we don't know and we don't know what the future is going to look like. And yeah, I mean. <laughs> You know, you go to any education conference, you hear that a million times. It's cool. Well, you hear, I, I specifically, it. I was thinking about Michael Cohen, you know, our friend of the podcast, Michael Cohen, the, the tech rabbi, has been quoted several times where he's saying that he, be, he believes that keyboards, again, are killing creativity. And he's one of the most creative educators out there uh, and professional development, you know, conference uh, presenters. Um and he believes that too. That's why. That's why I was just like even saying that because I know Andy like quoted him and was like, "Hey, I don't buy it. I don't buy. <laughs> I don't buy the idea that it's the keyboard that's the problem." Okay. 
Um, I, I do think that the problem is probably actually that districts and schools and educators aren't equipped to handle the eventuality where someone wants to use something else other than a keyboard um, mm. and can't provide that avenue for them. Um, I, I would never want to shoehorn any student into doing anything in a way that wasn't going to be their best output. Sure. Um, that's bad teaching. You choice. Yeah, exactly. And if you type well, type. If you write well, write. If you're a killer singer, sing, <laughs> sing. me a song about Napoleon invading Russia. I would love to hear it. If you draw. I got it. Yep. Draw it. But don't blame the keyboard because a teacher isn't equipped to provide differentiated instruction. But don't you think I that think, a lot of times... I think it time, makes the case for providing yeah. better differentiated instruction. But a lot of the time, Mike, and this is wrong. I'll admit right now that it's wrong. But it happens right now. The device is connected directly to the types of assignments and experiences that the teachers even want to... It's like, true. Have available. So you're right. It it doesn't that the keyboard didn't isn't isn't the <laughs> the, the keyboard's not the problem here. Is that, say the, it, Glenn. is that the creativity say it. killer? Thank but you. <laughs> it sure is the accomplice because the teachers then look at the thing and go, Oh, this is what I can see here. This is it's the crutch. Yeah, I this is what can be done on this thing. And this yeah. is what we're going to go ahead and push towards uh, our our students, and yeah. that's and that has to do with professional development and having yes. instructional coaches and so on and so forth. Um, yes. But it's sure easy to go ahead and take a look at that and go, "This is what we should give." And and you obviously as a great educator would say, "Yeah, I'm going to give a bunch of choice." and let students choose which way they're going to create. And I'm going to make sure that I give them various avenues and even become an expert in those various avenues to, if they, or they're like, well, Hey, is it possible to do this? And you're like, yes, let me show you how to do, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, whether it be a video or a singing thing or whatever I tried it might be, so hard, know? Glenn, uh, there, I, there's a story related to this. Maybe even I tried so hard once to hint. So, so I did this game design project with all my grade eights, right? And mm -hmm. they had to make a game. And I'll admit that making a game on a device that doesn't have a keyboard is probably pretty difficult. So mm -hmm. I, you know, it is what it is there. You know, that's the thing you make video games on usually. Now, that being said, I very strongly encouraged my students as often as I possibly could to think of creative ways to present your game. And I talked to them about making their own music instead of downloading music. You can record something mm. on an iPad and then upload it to Google Drive and then import it into Scratch as an audio file. And now you have your own music, awesome. things like that. I mean, instead of having text boxes down at the bottom, why don't you record your voice as an as an audio file and have Scratch import those audio files into Scratch, have them play at specific times, and then you have a user interface based on your voice on audio. Um, awesome. I tried so hard to give kids those kind of weird avenues yeah. to do things that aren't reliant on just, you know, the, the rote devices and ideas that we've always had. And that is what this feels like to me 
is not necessarily, again, a case against the keyboard as much as it's like, let's just give kids the chance to do what they want to do in the mm. way they want to do it. And That's a really good point. Um, <laughs> let's let's not listen. If if your five year old, don't don't please do not sit. If you're if you're if you have kindergarten grade one two kids, don't sit them in front of a computer and make them keyboard. No, it, it's not please healthy, uh, especially <laughs> you know, it's it's not fun. No, right. But um, Jacob, my youngest, who is four, is learning his letters. And now he's seeing the letters on the keyboard and he knows what they are and he knows what sounds they make. And, you know, and he's wondering so, why the hell are they in such a weird order? <laughs> <laughs> this is not A, B, C, D. What the, what is Q, Q W, W, E, R, T, Y, U? <laughs> no, doesn't go like that, buddy. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> it is super cool though yes i know that's it. funny I, I know. I love so he's that gonna learn keyboarding kind of organically hmm. and that's the best way to learn almost anything to be honest for sure um but it's the way that he's gonna learn um and then if he ends up wanting to type something he can type it um and and that's the way i hope you know that's what i hope teachers take out of this mm-hmm. is is that they just need to provide kids with the right tools and avenues and and opportunities to demonstrate their knowledge and though it's it's what we've been talking about for a decade friends when we come back we're gonna have an excellent conversation with alex pate so stay with us welcome back to the podcast everyone our guest this week is a New York Times bestselling author and the president and CEO of Innocent Technologies. He is the creator of the Innocent Classroom, a program for K-12 educators that aims to transform U.S. public education and end disparities by closing the relationship gap between educators and students of color. Prior to this, he was a professor and teacher at McAllister College and the University of Minnesota, Naropa University, and the University of Southern Maine Stone Coast Creative Writing Program. We're excited to have on the podcast, Alex Pate. Welcome to On Education, Alex. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate your having me on. It's an honor to be here. Awesome. I think before we get too far into the weeds, which is definitely where we want to go here, we should define some terms in the context of your work in particular. And I would love to talk about the terms guilt and innocence for a minute. Would you be able to break down what we're talking about when you use those terms? Because I I absolutely love the way you define them in the context. And I think it's going to frame up the rest of our conversation really well. I'd be happy to. Guilt, the way that I use it, is the impact, uh, the cumulative impact of negative stereotypes in a person's consciousness. Um, So often, if we know people are saying bad things about us, or if there are bad stories about us, or negative imagery, et cetera, et cetera, I'm saying that you, you don't exist with that innocently. Like it, it has a, it has a weight. It actually, you internalize those negative ideas. And they actually began to dictate in some in some cases and in some ways your behavior. 
And so that behavior is fraught with a kind of guilt for things that you haven't even done, but only that you perceive other people think you've done, if you follow me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Innocence is the removal of that, the neutralization of that, the elimination, the marginal, the minimization of the of the impact of negative stereotypes on your existence. And so in the context of the innocent classroom, we're seeing a lot of kids walk into the classroom sort of overburdened with uh, with the guilt that American culture has placed on them without them even knowing it. That has defined a lot of their actions and beliefs and feelings that are operating in the classroom. And innocence is is the consequence or the outcome of a teacher who has acknowledged that and sought to remove those things from the child's reality in their classroom so that the child can show up innocently in that environment. I love it. I think it's perfect. So, Alex, it's it's funny. We've been doing this podcast for over two years now, and I don't think I had ever mentioned um, this before. And now this is basically the second time in the last few weeks that I'm going to bring up Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens. Um, and it's funny, I brought it up a couple weeks ago and everyone was like, what was that book you were talking about, Mike? I got to go and read it now. And now I'm bringing it up again. So it's uh, I, and I think it is so related to what you're talking about here a little bit, because some of what you talk about in your work is related to the concept of narratives. Um, the problem with history and narratives is that when enough people decide they're true, they become common knowledge, despite the fact that they remain simply stories, narratives that we've created. And I think you're saying a lot of the same thing when it comes to how children of color are raised inside certain narratives and that that's perpetuated and reinforced through media, um, television, movies, and even inside of education itself. And it eventually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. Would you be able to unpack this a little for us? How have the stereotypes of children of color influenced their behavior and even possibly brought us to where we are today? So one of the things that the first one of the first things that we do in our training program um, and one of the first things I ask in the in, in my book, uh, The Innocent Classroom, um, is for educators to tell me or to tell whoever is in front of them what America has told them about children of color, not what they think, because it's really hard to get at the truth of what you feel, because none of us wants to be uh, responsible for these ideas, right? So, but America, so teachers, so then we stand at the board and we write down everything that educators say to us. And so it begins with angry, uh, 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 confrontational, argumentative, Mm. Uh, violent, promiscuous. Um, it just goes on and on like that, mm-hmm. those words. And so where is that coming from? I could go, I literally could go on and on. I could fill up, a, you know, as a writer, I've, I've been, I often talk about how many rejection slips I have and I could paste them. I could paper a couple of walls in a couple of rooms with all the rejection slips I've had over the course of my career. Well, those words, when you put them up on the wall, they just, it just, 
uh, when I first did it, did this exercise, it's like spitballs being thrown at you uh, because, you know, none of this reflects who you are. I'm an African-American male. And so all these words are being are flying around and the educators are ashamed and embarrassed that this is what it is when it is. And yet uh, we know now with when you know, with the impact and the power of cognition and cognitive processes, those words reside deep within our consciousness, those yeah. images. And so if America is saying that to our teachers, I say to them, um, it's hard to maintain a love, loves, a love knows no color modality, so to speak, in a crisis moment. Uh, it's hard to remove those negative terms. And I mean, I, you know, uh, kids of color are poor. I could go, like I said, I could go on and on with that list. Uneducatable, um, uh, uh, drug dealers, drug users, I mean, single parents, welfare. I mean, the list is horrible. And even the good, yeah. you know, like good dancers or you know, the good the terms look even. terrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> look terrible on that list. So and, I, I say to them, uh, if you know, if this is what America tells you, and you're conscious of that, think about what our children think about what they know that America says about them. I imagine it doesn't help that the current president of the United States uses, no. you know, code words constantly. I mean, constantly. when he says when he says inner cities, he's not actually talking about the inside core of a city. Right. He's talking about black people. Right. Exactly. And everybody, every like you said, is you know they use the term dog whistle, and everybody knows what he's referring to because those images exist. They exist. They exist, like you said, in games. They yep. exist in all. So, but then I say to the educators, if you know this and our children know this, that's a bad situation. You walk in immediately both having ideas about each other. Well, and the other thing is that our children often don't know, but can't not believe that you think the same thing about them. So they walk into an environment where they're immediately in conflict. They don't know. Uh, they just have to believe that as a as a representation of authority that you probably think the same thing that they think America is saying about them. Wow, that's it right there. I, th I think related to that, Alex, or is it, I think my next question is, is I think directly related to this. I was reading an article that was written about you um, and I was immediately drawn to this statement and it says, Pate pushes teachers to find each student's good and then build a strategy to connect with that student. Yes. And though it seems like such an obvious thing, yes. <laughs> right? It's, it's like it's at the core of, of being an educator yes. uh, to connect with our students. It's really hard work. It's complex, but it's even something else different. And that's the part that I want to talk to you about is um, we talk about it all the time when we want to develop relationships first before we, you know, delve into the content or whatever else it might right. be. Right. Um, why do you believe that so many of us as educators have such a hard time just doing this with our children of color? And is you know, it related to what you were just saying? Probably, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, first of all, people talk about the problem of relationships and relationship building, but hardly anybody has developed a way for educators to safely and progressively and uh, effectively build relationships with children they don't know and who 
these negative stereotypes stand as a barrier between, right? So um, part of the challenge, and I, I mean, when I say I stumbled on onto this reality, uh, my colleagues say, "Stop saying that! Stop saying that!" <laughs> the, the point is, is that because I taught creative writing for so long, and because in the teaching of creative writing, I spent a lot of time studying Aristotle, because Aristotle, as a in, in the context of developing character, I mean, sort of almost all of the articles and essays and textbooks about character development and creative writing flow back to Aristotle. And, <laughs> Arist and Aristotle, Aristotelian philosophy is this idea that um, when you know why a character is doing what they're doing, then you then empathy is released. It, it immediately springs into reality. So uh, in the context of the innocent classroom, how do you go from guilt to innocence? And the only way to do that, in my opinion, is to embrace good, is to help an educator find. But good in the Aristotelian concept is not versus good versus bad or good versus yeah. evil. Good is defined as the thing for which all other things are done. Mm. So un un unpack that though, because that that sounds really like nice. Right. Um, <laughs> but but how do you actually? do that exactly exactly i mean the, the so when you say that to a group of teachers they're like okay so how <laughs> right <laughs> right and that's the whole heart of the program how do you track through a child's reality to find the good the thing that's driving all of their behavior that if you embrace and engage they will drop their guilt at the door and open themselves up because you create this empathetic relationship they see you differently they stop wondering if you are just an extension of the outside world in that reality they open themselves up to you so how so um in the training, we go through a, a set of stages. The first stage is observation, watching a child very carefully, understanding what their hobbies are, what their doodles are saying to you, who their friends are, how they talk, how they interact with the negative stereotypes that exist around them. Uh, what can you sense in them and see in them that is unique and different or special or just them? And then once you have a sense of that, then it is about understanding that their life is different from your life, that you can't sort of relate on a one-to-one -one basis directly immediately. You have to understand the challenges that child is going through. And once you get across that line, then the hardest thing to do is to switch places with them for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, is to begin to see how they see you. Because the point of this, I mean, on another philosophical level, um, we sort of employ a cons you know, a, 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 an aspect of epistemology. We say, and I define epistemology. So you asked me to define innocence and guilt, but actually there are four things that need to be defined. Innoc innocence okay. on one end, I mean, guilt on one end, innocence as our objective. In the meantime, we need to find that child's goodness or that good, the thing for which all other things are done in that child's life. And then we have to identify that epistemology, the way a child is thinking. So uh, a child, and when you know they're good, then you can begin to understand what, how, so we define epistemology as how you think about what you think about. So all teachers have a way of thinking about students 
when they think about them. And all children have a way of thinking about teachers when they, and we all have an epistemological reality. So mm-hmm. if you can break into that child's way of looking at you, especially when they haven't done their homework or they just were in a fight or there's a big issue going on in the classroom and you lean down into that child's face and you're admonishing them or encouraging them or doing, you. What is that child seeing, hearing from come out of your mouth? What is that child thinking about you at that precise time? Switch places with them for that second. Can you see? And when you can begin to understand what that child is feeling, you can then lock in on their good and develop strategies to respond to it. I don't know. That's really kind of... No, that's, that's really good. Okay, good. I, and I, I actually had a follow-up of that uh, because we were going to talk about your professional development sessions Uh, too often. And you, you're probably very familiar with this. We fill, I'm an instructional coach now and and a 20 year veteran of education. And I've been to tons of professional development days and I've actually even given some professional development sessions. Yeah. Um, And, but too often all we're doing is, is check boxing things. And one of them in Minnesota just happens to be, and it probably exists in other states too, but we have this cultural competency training that you need to have one hour of uh, per year licensing period. So for me, it would be every five years, which is really, it just speaks really loudly as far as like, it's good that it's there, that is there, but to have one hour of training every five years, it, it just... It just seems to it's fit along ineffective. with it. It's yes, ineffective. it's ineffective. Exactly. And, and I, too often, you're going to get yeah. me into trouble if we keep going down this road. <laughs> <laughs> We're good at that, Alex. That's like literally so Mike on and I brand just talked about us. professional development a lot, uh, as far as on on the podcast, and just how bad it is, um, and how how we want it to be better for for our educators, obviously, and so that's the culture of professional development becomes something that you are passionate about as an educator to attend versus something that you're dreading because you know it's just not something that's going to affect you in the profession. And in this case, I would just think, just listening to you as far as talking about, uh, I mean, I I was reading about your your professional development, uh, your series of professional development days that you give, and they focus on dismantling racial and ethnic stereotypes and framing the student-teacher relationship that's a super important thing yeah. to form those bonds, the relationships, and just to function really well as a as as a as a building, as a district, and yeah. and have those relationships in there. Um, and I'll, I I mean I don't know where the question is. Basically, I was gonna my question well, was, was gonna, gonna be yeah. I, I was gonna I was gonna say yeah. Um, I'm just gonna go ahead and implicate myself right okay. from the beginning. <laughs> Sounds great. I, I, I walked into this environment. Because I was meditating on my own innocence. Mm. And I was in a process of freeing myself from the guilt that I had accumulated over the course of the years of my life. Uh, And I was in a meeting on cultural proficiency training with a group of folks in Minneapolis. And at the end of that meeting, I just happened to talk about this essay I was writing called Revolutionary Innocence, which is still yet unpublished. And But it forms the basis of everything that I'm talking to you about. And they were like, oh, so what does that mean? Uh, free yourself. How are you? What are you doing? How is that happening? And so I, I talked about all of that. And then um, there happened to be a funder in the room. And she said, do you think 
other children of color experience this? And I'm like, I, I think so. And she said, well, could you develop some programmatic response to that? So that led to the beginning of the innocent classroom. Interesting. But in the, yes. But in the process, I've made a, a number of uh, important guideposts for me. I am not doing cultural competency or cultural proficiency. I am not doing diversity training. Those things have their place and importance, and certainly one one hour every couple of years or five, whatever the time frame is, is not is not is not enough. But even once that's done, even if it's really effective, how does that help you with Jane, with Carlos, with? Uh, Ahmed, how does that help you make that help that child be a better student? I'm not sure. I mean, I think it does in some way, but but it's not individualized enough. And so I saw Innocent Classroom as a solutional approach to this challenge. How do you remove all the barriers that that child faces, opening themselves up to being an engaged uh, learner, curious and energetic in your classroom for you. And so you have to build this relationship with this child. You have to do this work. And I can make this work as easy as possible by simply by simply saying, find that child's good. So I've talked about the guilts. So what if we talked about the goods for a minute? So we've identified about 10 or 12 goods. And the goods are, for example, can you care for me? Uh, nobody ever really seems to care for me. Nobody at home, nobody in the street, nobody on the bus, nobody. Can you do that? Can you help me feel safe? I never feel safe. I mean, I could, no matter what I do, I, no matter where I'm at, I never feel safe. I never feel seen or heard. I never feel respect. I mean, so we have a series of those. And they respond directly because I'm saying that whatever you're seeing from that child is coming from that feeling. It's like, I'm disconnected. Can you help me feel connected? And if you can help that child feel connected, what behavior you're seeing is going to disappear. Uh, so why is that child's head on the desk all day, every day? Why? I mean, okay, in some cases that child is working. And you right. didn't know that. Some cases, but if a, if a child is heads on a desk because they're working at night, what are they really asking you for right now? What is their goodness? Why are they working at night? And how can you accommodate that in the context of your lesson planning with them? Anyway, I mean, you see, you see how this is all connected to me, to relationship. The gap that we are dealing with, the bias, to me, the disparities are simply a language of relationship failure. All disparities, mm -hmm. we come back to this point. It's like, if you build a relationship with a person but disparities start to disappear. In your um, in your work, Alex, you, you say that the innocent classroom is a place where children are allowed to exist without the weight yeah. of the negative stereotypes uh, and the narratives that affect their lives. We've talked about this. Uh, outside the classroom, to some, they may be just yeah. another representation yeah. of some stereotype, but inside your classroom, none of that touches them. So... And, and this this goal, you have this goal of having our students kind of claim yep. their innocence um, and, and, and um, helping educators help students do that. So I'm curious how, as educators, we reconcile the need 
um, to protect children from these harmful stories, these narratives, this media, these stereotypes, um, with the need to make them fully aware of the world they're mm. living in. Um, one of the, you know, the the it's i wouldn't call it like a conflict necessarily i just think it's something we need to figure out how to resolve and that's that you know it's clear that black and indigenous people of color are struggling in this world uh, and you know i'm canadian it's a reality in canada um and it's a re reality in the united states and 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 i worry about us you know, straying away from that reality in the sense that we, you know, and and maybe I'm off base or maybe it needs to be reframed, this idea of making sure that students are aware of the world that we live in so that they can properly combat it and, 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 you know, fight it or however we want to frame it. Um, yep. So I want to make sure I understand if um, what you're saying is correct, that, you know, do you think that we should continue to quote unquote expose students to the realities of the world that they live in or 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 how do we how do we teach this you know when we know that there is problems and we know that there's struggles and they have to be kind of acknowledged at the same time i kind of i i've been expecting this question since i began this program and i might have been asked it once before, but I don't remember. So I appreciate this question Perfect. very much. I thought a lot about it. Um, but what I say to educators in general is your job is not to balance out life for these children. Mm. I mean, so this is going to fly in some ways up against your ideas about exposing, exposing the world to them. I'm saying they are already deeply exposed. exposed. Hmm. There is nobody who is providing them with the other side. It's like, we're going to sort of go into the details of your oppression, the details of your, and I mean, I get why, because you need to understand that the world is organized in this particular way, and you suffer in some ways because of that organization or the, that systemic reality of race and all of that. That's true. But I say to my educators, when I'm in front of them, your best thing is to learn is to is to learn how to love these children in such a way that you provide the opposite picture of the world to them in your classroom. Because mm. this relationship you're developing has no power on the streets. And the whole idea of innocence is has no street cred whatsoever. So don't even be talking about innocence in your classroom. Don't I mean, we when we work with when I work with educators, I'm like, you don't need to go back to class and say, well, I just heard this guy talking about innocence. No, no, stop. Your job is to show them is to show them that you are not a part of that world out there, that you see them differently. You see them best that you see what is at the core of their life and you are responding to that the best you can and that should deserve that deserves their uh, trust and faith in you to lead them through this next 9 months period be the be the one good place be the one good place if not maybe maybe home is great maybe church is great i'm not going i'm not so this is not anti anything this is more about but you know you understand because 
This is more about what you can do to, to, to offset all of that negativity that exists out there. You can't beat it. Exposing them to it only, I'm saying, if, if you hear the same stereotype over and over and over again, regardless whether it's meant to help or meant to hurt, it hurts. Yeah, I get this. Yeah. Or at least th- this is this. Is, I'm not saying I'm. Uh, I don't know if I'm right about this completely, but I think I am. I think that our children get enough outside. So I say to teachers, you don't have to balance. You don't have to. I mean. Uh, when you talk about the community, talk about the things that are true about the community too. Talk about the fact that people fall in love, that people have children, that people work hard, that people go to church, that people clean their houses, that people do this. Everybody, we all do a similar kind of thing every day, all day, that almost always gets overlooked for the person, for the violence that is happening somewhere or the challenge or the, okay, that's real. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying don't talk about racism. Yeah. But race should almost always be contextualized within the context in an environment where the teacher and the students have a relationship where they understand that that information you're giving them is meant to move them forward. Awesome. And you talk about relationships a lot, the, this student-teacher relationship and the need um, yeah. for teachers to have kind of a, a, you say, a deep-seated understanding of students' lives beyond the classroom, uh, yeah. that teachers need to grapple with their own subconscious views and then nurture a relationship devoid of that stereotypical weight that you know we're all exposed to um and alex i can't think of a more important time than now for this to happen um not just because of covid um though i'm certain that covid heightened this need um for educators to to really pause and understand your students and understand their lives and why you said why their head might be down on the desk and maybe it's because their mom is quarantined in the bedroom and, right. and they have to make breakfast and dinner for their That's family right. every day. Like, I mean, there's those things that are going on in, in houses real, right? all over the world right now. Yep. And uh, teachers need to, to understand these things. But I also think that the world in the U.S. in particular are finally listening to these messages as it relates to, you know, race and equity and yep. might be ready, might be, you know, heaven for... I mean, crossing <laughs> fingers, crossing everything that can be possibly crossed. You know, the election was a good, uh, at least a a sign, maybe, um, that that there might be a time when we're ready to start tackling this. How optimistic are you that educators are ready to look inside themselves and do what, you know, Glenn referred to it earlier as, you know, this really hard work? Yes, um, that's a that's also a very good question. I think I think my experience is more. I think more and more as time passes, educators are really realizing how important this is and realizing the challenge. I've I've had teachers stand up in a room and say, "You're asking me to give more. That's really hard right now." And I mean, not this is pre-COVID, and and it's like my child is home. I need to go home to be with my child and think about my, and I realized we were, I was, I was in a bad moment with this person, right? With this teacher. But that was, I mean, because she was literally drawing a line in the sand and saying, I can do this much. I can't do any more. And part of this challenge, I think, is to remove that line completely is to not, 
I mean, I don't mean be unprofessional, right? Because I think there is a professional kind of uh, limit to what you can do. And I, I make a point about this with teachers all the time. Because one of the things that happens is when you start to embrace someone else's good and engage that good, as I said, the first byproduct of that reality is empathy. And empathy draws you deeper in. And empathy demands action. Mm -hmm. And so, but I'm saying, you know, you know, uh, there's no reason to take that beyond a certain point, but it's not helpful to think about what that point is until you are on it. And then you realize, okay, I've done what I can for this child. I can't do any more. And maybe you, you start to turn tone down at that point. But by then in the innocent classroom process, you really have a big impact on that child's life. But in general, I see more and more educators trying to figure out how to take this step, how to how to understand their students better, how to help. Because I think the tragedy that is taking place in communities of color in school realities is becoming more and more evident. And teachers are witnesses to this. They're not the cause of it. And they know, you know, it's really hard because the world wants to accuse them of being a part of the problem. I don't think teachers are part of the problem. I mean, not really. I think teachers have to do the work they have to do. They have to understand culture. They have to understand all of that stuff, race and economics and classism. They have to understand all of that. Gender issues, they have to understand all of that. But they have to, that knowledge becomes deep and 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 uh, can reside within the consciousness of an educator. But they have to build a relationship with my child. They have to know who my child is, and then they can begin. And, and what is driving my this child's energy and, and, and reality in such a way that that child responds to the teacher as a as a leader? Mm. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I, I'm sure that people, the listeners, want to find ways to be able to connect with you online or where they can purchase your book yep. or even maybe even give us information on what if a district is looking into bringing, you know, some professional development uh, with your innocent classroom professional learning to their school or to their district? How can we do that, Alex? Well, uh, start off with innocentclassroom.com. On that website, I mean, it's a fairly detailed website with a lot of data because, I mean, all of what I'm saying to you is backed up now by data. We've, we've, we've been working in schools for about eight years uh, so a lot of that material is there. Uh, the book, Innocent Classroom, Dismantling Racial Bias to, to Support Students of Color, is uh, published in September by ASCD. It's available on Amazon and in the, at the website, on their website. We actually, I don't know when this is running, but we have a, you know, we do an annual conference, which is coming up probably too soon for us for it to matter here, but uh, it's December 5th. But if they make a contact on the website, I'll be back in touch with them. And I'm really interested in having ongoing conversations about this. And just as a final aside, we are we do work with a lot of districts. And lately, we've been doing book studies where districts will buy the book for leadership or for the entire district. That's and fantastic. I'll join them and we do conversations mm. about the book in detail. Mm. Alex Pate, thank you so much yes. for joining us. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Glenn, same to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the On Podcast Media Network. 
You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Monica Burns, Mike Matera, Tisha Richmond, and many more by visiting onpodcastmedia.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website, oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found on Twitter at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Participate, for supporting us. Check out Participate.com to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.